We're in Romans chapter 14 tonight, crawling right along. When I was a brand new believer, there were certain aspects of the will of God that to me were unmistakable. I knew God wanted me saved. That was His will. His word explicitly says that. I knew that God wanted me to be moral. His word explicitly says that. And there were several other things that I just knew, didn't have to guess, didn't have to argue, were the will of God. But there were other things that, that really bothered me, I didn't have answers to. Was it God's will that I go to college? It was a big issue, because I had some Christians telling me it wasn't God's will for me to go to college, and I had already signed up. And they're telling me it's ungodly. And I said, why? And they said, well, the rapture's going to come before you graduate. <laughs> I thought, so? But these were issues I was struggling with. Should I buy that car or should I just ride my bicycle? Things that aren't overtly stated in Scripture. We might call these gray areas. And we've tried to look at that last week. The will of God is discussed in chapter 12 and chapter 13, but then concerning these indifferent or gray areas, we pick up in chapter 14. There's two groups that are mentioned, the weak and the strong. And we who are strong ought to receive those who are weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Let's pick it up in verse 7 and let's read down. For none of us lives to himself, no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore let us Pursue the things which make for peace, and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith 
For whatever is not from faith is sin. Among the ancient Greeks, there was a group of philosophers who developed a school of thought known as Stoics. You've heard the term, somebody is considered Stoic if they're unemotional. But the Stoics were a brand of philosophers who lumped certain things in life as neutral activities or neutral things. They are without moral standing. They're neither good nor bad. They called this, their Greek word, adiaphora. Adiaphora standed for things that were neutral things, indifferent areas, secondary issues, gray areas. In fact, the Stoics put it this way, it all depends by which handle you pick them up. It can be used for good, it can be used for bad, but they of themselves are neutral. Well, Paul the Apostle says that there are certain things in the Christian life that are neutral in and of themselves. There's nothing wrong with them. In fact, they may be right, but if you pick them up by the wrong handle, somebody else could take offense. And so we ought not to do them for the sake of love. Much later on, St. Augustine said that when it came to Christian ethics, you could sum it all up by saying this, love God and do whatever you want. Because if you truly love God, you'll do things that are pleasing to God. And while that is true, that you can love God and do whatever you please, the Bible also says we should not only love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, but love our neighbor as ourselves, so that in loving the Lord, part of that loving God is to love other people who are God's children especially. In fact, John says, how can you say you love God while at the same time you would despise your brother or sister. It's inconsistent. And so, with the law of love in mind, we approach these verses as we did last week. And we see that true Christianity is loving our neighbor as ourselves. And just to refresh your memory, even though it wasn't in this text specifically, we gave you a test, a test that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and chapter 10. A test by which... When it comes to those secondary indifferent issues, those gray areas, the adiaphora, as the Stoics said, you can apply these tests, find out if you ought to do them or not. First, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, it's the test of utility. Does it help me? Paul said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. They don't aid me along my goal, my journey. They don't expedite my path in the Lord. So though I could do it technically, it doesn't really help me. And because it's not a wing, it could be actually a weight. So it's the test of utility. Will it help me? Second is the test of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, not only the test of utility, but the test of authority. And that is, does it enslave me? Paul said, continuing in that verse, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of anything. So if I engage in this practice, if I get into this process, will that activity or that thing begin to control my life? If it controls me, I'm no longer free. I've become its slave. It hasn't become my slave. I'm not the master anymore. And so 
well, I better not do that because it might become addictive. It might become a habit that controls my life. It's wrong. Though it might be neutral, it could be wrong for me. And then finally is the test of charity, and that's 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. So I ask myself those questions. Does it help me? Does it enslave me? And third, does it hinder others? Others. Does it stumble others? And that's what he's going to get into tonight. Uh, we kind of left off in verse uh, 6, and we saw that there were two specific issues that he was dealing with, and then we branched off and made application from those two issues. The two issues in question is the issue of diet, what you can and cannot eat, and the issue of days, when you can worship and when you cannot worship. And remember the problem. You had two different groups mingled together in the church. We have many more than two groups tonight mingled together. We have a whole host of traditional baggage right now in this room. Some of you were raised with a certain tradition, and when you came to Calvary and you heard drums, you thought, <gasps> God cannot be glorified with a beat. Believe it or not, people believe that, and some of you still may hold ardently to that. Obviously, I do not. Others of you came and you saw the pastor wearing jeans, not a robe. You had trouble with that. I remember when I first came to town, a pastor said, you know, if you're going to start this church, you need a robe. <laughs> it just won't work. And at that time, you know, I'm, I'm in my 20s, and they said, nobody's going to take you serious. And I'm thinking, listen, they're not going to take me seriously if I have a robe. They're going to think it's like Halloween or something. They're going to... But, but, but the pastor of this church was gracious. He said, listen, I'd love to buy you a robe. It'll be my gift. It'll be a gift from our church years. And so I had to really graciously tiptoe around that. Well, thank you and God bless you, but no. It just won't work. So the issue of diet, the issue of days, Jews were a part of the congregation. Gentiles were a part of the congregation. The Gentiles who were saved, raised in pagan culture, walked by their pagan temples every day, and they thought nothing of buying meat that had been sacrificed to Zeus or Aphrodite or whatever god or goddess was there. And they'd take it home and barbecue it and wouldn't think anything of it. But a young Jewish believer who saw meat sacrificed to an idol tantamount to worshiping that god said, I can't do this. And there was a conflict. Same with days. We talked about that in the verses, uh, verse 5 and verse 6. When I grew up, we had a thing in our church called Sunday obligation. I don't know if you were raised with that, but I was. Have you kept your Sunday obligation? And so you could go to Mass on Saturday night and fulfill your Sunday obligation, or you could go to church on Sunday, and if you left after uh, you can't leave, you know, you have to have the offertory to the communion. If you leave after that, it's okay. The rest of the service doesn't matter because you fulfilled your obligation. Now, as a true believer in Christ, I don't think in terms of Sunday obligation. It's Sunday celebration. When you have a relationship with God, there's no obligation at all. You can't get enough. It's not, do I have to go to church? It's, do I get to go to church? It's an awesome privilege. It's a celebration. So some of these things become a moot point for those who grow in the faith. They don't care if it's Sunday or Wednesday or Thursday at 3 in the morning. Every minute of their day belongs to God. Well, let's back up, look at verse 6, and we'll continue on. He who observes the day 
observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. He who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, bottom line is, it doesn't matter. What you eat, what you don't eat, when you worship, when you don't worship. Because, and this is simply, keep in mind, we're framing this. This has to do with the indifferent issues, the secondary issues, the gray areas. That's the context here. So don't move these principles out into some other area that doesn't belong. But when it comes to gray areas, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter because the motivation is the same. The person who's hung up on the Sabbath day of worship, not Sunday, he's doing it because he wants to honor God. The person who's hung up on, we've got to worship on Sunday, not Saturday, he's doing it to honor the Lord. He's refraining from one day of worship and worshiping on another day with the motivation that God would be glorified. And the same with the person who says, gosh, I, I don't think we should worship one day over another. It's all the same to me. His motivation is identical. And so because of that, you know, it's basically an appeal to conscience. That's why back in verse 5, he says, let, everyone be, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, in unspecific matters in the Scripture, where the Bible doesn't have a clear stance on the will of God in an area, we have these gray areas. There is an appeal to the conscience. Make up your own mind. Form your own conviction. Do what you feel God has laid on your heart to do in these gray areas, these secondary issues. You don't want to sin against your conscience because if you sin against your conscience, you're going to go through the whole thing feeling like, this is wrong. I shouldn't do this. It's wrong to live that way. Somebody once said that conscience is a three-pointed thing in my heart that turns around when I do something wrong. And the points hurt a lot. But if I keep doing bad, the points eventually wear off and then it doesn't hurt anymore. So when it comes to these indifferent gray secondary issues, we have to be careful to listen to our conscience because God will speak through that. At the same time, just as it's wrong to sin against our own conscience and our own conviction, it's also wrong to push your conviction on somebody else who has a different conviction in these gray areas. Keep in mind, I, I, I feel like I have to keep reiterating that because somebody is going to hear this and go, oh, that means we can just kind of do whatever we want in life and if I decide to move in with this girl and have sexual relationships before marriage and that's my personal conviction. No, that is clearly sinful and wrong overtly. We're dealing with secondary issues here where the Bible isn't specific on and I feel like I have to frame that and underline that because we all have a tendency to have selective listening disorder. Right? We'll listen to a certain thing and infer something from it that's really not there. So this is the secondary issue. The point is this. No Christian has the right to play Holy Spirit with another person regarding what you eat, what you don't eat, when you go to church, what day you worship or not. You can advise a person and you can pray with a person, and you can lay out biblical principles and help give them guidance. But when it comes to these issues, don't you dare take the place of the Holy Spirit working in the conscience. That's God's job. Once a girl came to me, and she was confused about whom she ought to marry. 
She said, I'm dating this guy and I'm confused. I prayed about it, but I don't have an answer. And so I've told God that whatever answer you give me, that's what I'm going to do. I said, you, you think I'm going to let you hang that on me? You think I'm going to be responsible for that kind of a decision? You're nuts. Well, I didn't tell her she was nuts, but I, I thought she was nuts. I said, no, the Bible gives you certain principles on knowing God's will. You are on your own. He is your Lord. I trust that God will be able to guide you in this. Verse 7, for none of us lives to himself. No one dies to himself. It's impossible to live a totally isolated life. There is no such thing as a completely detached person. Even the person who says, I don't depend on anybody else, and goes off in the wilderness and plays Jeremiah Johnson and lives off the wild and eats barks off trees and dies alone, he still has somebody who gave him birth, perhaps some relative or friend that was attached to him. And when he dies and somebody finds his body, he's now placing a burden on those who did it. So there is always an attachment in life. You cannot live completely isolated as an island. And by the way, Paul puts this statement in here for a reason. This is not an exhortation. It's a statement of fact. The fact is no one lives to himself in the Lord as a Christian, and no one dies to himself. It's a description of a believer. Whether you're a strong or a weak believer, you live and die before the Lord. That's the point of the next verse. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. That's a description of a believer. A believer is never someone who lives to himself. A true Christian never says, I have the right to do whatever I want to, and by golly, no one's going to tell me what to do. If you think that way, you only prove you are unconverted. That's all. Because it's impossible, if he's your Lord, to say, I'll do whatever I please, whatever I want, and no one will tell me anything. It only proves you have not been truly converted if you think that independently from God. Why? Because Jesus paid the price for your sins. Remember what Paul says in Corinthians, you are not your own. I love that verse, by the way. I love to know that Jesus bought me with his precious blood. That's a very expensive transaction, by the way. That God had Jesus shed his blood to buy you into his kingdom. So you belong to him. You're not your own any longer. Remember Jesus said, I always do those things that please the Lord. That's how he lived. Never lived for himself. I always do those things that please my Father. I don't. I try. It's my aim. It's my desire to be able to say that. But quite frankly and quite honestly, I can't say, I always do those things that please God. But it is my aim. In 2 Corinthians, Paul said, we make it our aim, whether in the body or absent from the body, to always be pleasing to the Lord. That's what we're shooting for, a life that is pleasing unto the Father. Remember, it was Abraham Lincoln who said, you can please some of the people some of the time, all of the people some of the time, and some of the people all the time, but you can never please all the people all the time. But we can aim, rather than just pleasing people, pleasing God. 
That can be our goal, our aim, whether we live, whether we die. An attached, devoted, committed life of pleasing God. So while we're called to serve our brother and sister, it's because we're called to please God. And if we please God, we'll serve them and we'll take them into consideration. Verse 8, look at that a little more carefully. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. It's a great principle. It's a great way to live, to let this be sort of the direction by which you set your, your compass by. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this comes the judgment. I want to live my life for God. Let him take care of the rest. He knows the appointed time of my death. And you know what? Whenever that appointed time comes, great. I'm ready. Let's go. Let's go to heaven. Let's go home. Now, I do believe that I'm invincible until God's finished with me. I always look at the two witnesses in Revelation 11. It says, when they had finished their testimony, then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Nothing touched them. Nothing harmed them. Nothing killed them until they had finished their testimony. There's going to come a day when you finish your testimony. Now, it's hard for some of us to accept when God takes somebody home. We think, oh, they didn't finish their testimony. They had so much more to give. That's just from our perspective. God is saying, I'm done with them here, but now they die unto me and they're in my presence. So it's a great way to live. And if we can live that way, then we can also apply this to all of these secondary issues. If we learn to take everything in life and test it by the presence of God, will this glorify God? If I live this way, will it bring glory to God? And then I apply those three tests that we mentioned before, utility, authority, and charity. Whether I live or die, I belong to him. For to this end, or for this reason, verse 9, Christ died and rose and lived again that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for your sins. He lives. He ascended to the right hand of the Father as Lord so that, now listen carefully, it's more than just making Jesus your Savior, raising a hand, shedding a tear, saying a prayer. That's just the first step. That's inaugural. That's initiatory. You get saved. Great. But the goal of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is that he might become your Lord, your master. That you might be his slave, his servant. And so he says, to this end he died and rose. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, Paul said, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. I wonder how many of us see our lives as belonging to Christ. He bought me. I don't own myself anymore. I don't have the right, really, to make my own decisions independent from the will of God. I can't just wake up in the morning and go, okay, uh, I feel sort of like doing this or that. Because 
When I came to Christ, I gave him my life. It's like giving the pink slip of your car to Jesus. And the keys. Saying, okay, you drive. It's your car. You drive. You, you own it. I'll sit in the back seat. And of course, sometimes we try to be the backseat driver. You missed the turn, Lord! No, I didn't. But he's our Lord. We're his servants. He's the master. His lordship continues in life and up to the point of death, where if I am absent from the body, I am present with the Lord. My body might lie in the grave, but I'll be in the presence of his glory. So Charles Wesley was right when he said, All my requests are lost in one. Father, thy will be done. What do you want for my life? You're the Lord. But why do you judge your brother? Verse 10. Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now we're getting somewhere. If we were to sum up Paul's three reasons up to this point, three reasons we should never divide over secondary issues, over indifferent issues, over these gray areas of diet and days. The three reasons are this. We have the same motive to honor God. We have the same Lord. It's not like you have a different Lord than I have if you're a born-again believer. He's he's the same boss, same Lord. Third reason, same future. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this verse applies only to the believer. Only the believer will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The unbeliever will not stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is for rewards, not salvation, rewards. The unbeliever, called in Scripture the dead, those who are separated from God, will stand before God at the great white throne judgment, very different from the judgment seat of Christ. The great white throne judgment is when all the unbelievers will be judged at the end of the tribulation period. We read about it in Revelation chapter 20. In fact, I'll read it to you. Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And, of course, it says their name wasn't there, found in the book, then they were excluded. But here it says the judgment seat of Christ. Every believer will face this judgment. But this is not a judgment for your sin. It's not where every thought you've ever done and everything you've ever done wrong, okay, remember that, we'll put it on a video screen. The judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment for sin. That's done with at the cross. John chapter 5, you pass from death into life, and you will not face judgment, it says. Not that kind of judgment for your sin. This is a reward seat. The Greek word is bema. And the bema seat literally meant a raised platform for the Olympics. 
You'd walk up certain steps onto this platform or the bema, and before you would be a judge. And the judge at the Olympics rewarded people first, second, third, or fourth place if they placed. And so you'd approach this judgment seat, bema seat, only to get a reward, or you'd stay back because you didn't receive a reward. The imagery of Paul the Apostle is that of running a race to be rewarded, which is simply something he did a lot. In the New Testament, he often spoke of the, the Christian life as being a race, you remember? Over in First uh, and Second Corinthians, he talks about running the race. The writer of Hebrews speaks about running the race. And Paul said, do you not know that in a race everyone runs, but only one gets the prize? So run in such a way that you may obtain the prize. In other words, here's how we ought to live the Christian life. We go for it with all that we can, as if you're an athlete wanting to get first place in the Olympics. Great way to run. I'll tell you what, if you live that way, you'll never ask questions like, hey, can I uh, get away with this and still be a Christian? You think I can do this and still get to heaven? Barely, but I'll get there. You don't live that way if you think of ter in terms of, man, I want, a, I want a place. I want a place, first, second, third, or fourth. The Bema seat or the Bema seat of Christ has nothing to do with salvation, but your position in the kingdom, rewards. Uh, turn with me ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 for just a moment. Let's look at it in another take of this reward seat for believers. We'll pick it up around verse 11 speaks of a time of review and reward or withholding of the reward upon review due to your service. Let me just tell you that the context has to do with the preacher or the teacher building upon the foundation of Christ with his or teaching or preaching. But secondary, it has to do with just the way we serve Christ. For no other foundation, verse 11, can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. This is for your work, not your salvation. This is for your service in the Lord. And the day, the day of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, the analogy he uses as uh, like a blacksmith who would take certain materials and if you put gold or silver or precious stones in a fire, it won't consume them. It'll simply purify them, prove what they are. But if it's wood, hay, or stubble, it'll be quickly burned up. And so there will come a time when we will be rewarded for what we do on the earth and we'll get a position in the kingdom based upon what we did on the earth. We'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ for that. For it is written, verse 11, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Paul is quoting Isaiah 45. 
He'll quote him later on also in Philippians. But he's quoting Isaiah 45 to emphasize the universality of God's jurisdiction. God and God alone is the ultimate judge, not us. In fact, God's jurisdiction extends to every single person, believer, the judgment seat of Christ, unbeliever, the great white throne judgment, every knee, every tongue. His jurisdiction is universal for every person. And the emphasis is on he's the judge. Notice, and I'll emphasize it again, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God, so each of us shall give an account of himself to God. All of us are given, will give an account of ourselves, not of our brother. You'll never stand before God and say, Now, God, before we move any further in this process, let me tell you about this Christian brother of mine that we disagreed with on earth. You won't be able to get to that place. He'll judge the service of your brother that you disagreed with and you. Remember... Peter tried to do this when uh, Jesus appeared to Peter after the resurrection. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. You know that incident, John 21. Jesus then predicts Peter's future. He says, Peter, when you were young, you girded yourself and you went wherever you wanted to go. But when you're older, somebody else will gird you and they will carry you to where you don't want to go. And he was predicting his capture and his death, which happened some years later in Rome, outside of Rome, and he was taken to the city. As Jesus is telling Peter this, out of the corner of Peter's eye, he can see John, the apostle, the one whom Jesus loved, the one who laid his head on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper, coming, joining in this conversation. And so Peter looks at John and says, Lord, what about him? And Jesus said, Peter, if it is my will that he should tarry until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Put Peter in his place. Peter's worried about John. And Jesus said, Peter, I'll worry about John. This is about you. It's not about him following me. It's about you following me. You follow me. And so in judgment, you're not going to have to give an account of anybody else before God. You'll give an account of yourself. One of the saddest sights in any fellowship is when people divide over these kind of issues, secondary issues that we've been dealing with last week and this week, pointing fingers in judgment. And if there's one thing that the world notices about the church, the world usually won't notice when we love each other. We're supposed to do that because Jesus said that's the proof that we're really belonging to him by our love. But articles are never written about churches that love each other. Articles are written about churches that fight each other. Any problematic areas. When Christians point the finger at each other or divide over an issue, well, that makes news. Look at these Christians shooting their own. That's why we have to be very, very careful. Choosing our fights correctly. Not dividing over secondary issues. Why? Because the church is called the body of Christ. Plant that image in your mind every time you come to church. I'm a part of the body of Christ. 
A healthy body is wonderful. When every part works the way it ought to work, it's a great feeling. It's a great experience. When my brain says to my hand something and my hand does it, when my brain commands my feet to do something, my feet do it. When my brain says, walk to the refrigerator, and my feet obey the brain, it's wonderful, and then the brain says to the hand, open the door. And it's great when there's an obedience and a cooperation, and, and then bend your head and see what's in there. <laughs> Take that sandwich. And then the mouth cooperates nicely by the diglutition process and the chewing process and uh, the enzymes work in the stomach. It's great. The body of Christ ought to be a smooth, functioning organism. Too often, the body resembles a diseased body. I've often thought of my friend when I was growing up in California that developed multiple sclerosis, and I observed what happened to his body. It was so tragic. As certain parts of the cortex of the brain hardened so that the electrical impulses that should be transmitted were impeded, were stopped. So that instead of smooth movements, there were jerky movements. It wasn't coordinated. It wasn't beautiful any longer. And soon he was, he was kept in a wheelchair because the disease was taking over. Too often, the church looks like that. Instead of operating smoothly in love, realizing that his jurisdiction is to every knee, every tongue, and I don't need to worry about judging that. Leave it up to him. We start judging one another. And it's a horrible thing to observe. Karen Maines wrote a book called The Key to a Loving Heart, and she has a parable in her book about the church. She calls the brawling bride. Now, we know the bride is a metaphor in Scripture of the church, right? The bride of Christ. Christ is the groom. Well, she, she, she draws that analogy, and there's a parable in the book. Jesus is standing at the altar in a wedding. He's the groom. The church is the bride. And it's the climactic moment of the wedding. The bridesmaids and the groomsmen have come up forward. The groom is waiting there. The minister is in place. The Bible is open. The crowd stands to greet the bride at the back of the church. The music on the organ plays, the processional. Suddenly the bride appears and everybody <gasps> gasps because she's limping. Her gown is torn. She has a swollen eye. There's mud all over her. She's obviously been in a fight. And as she's walking, limping down the aisle, looking like a mess, Karen Maines in the book says, Doesn't he, Christ, deserve better than this? His bride, the church, has been fighting again. And so Paul says, you know what? Instead of judging over these secondary issues, you'd all get a good night's sleep if you'd realize there's only one judge and it's not you. God hasn't given his job to you. God hasn't said, I'm busy, I can't be the Holy Spirit today. Would you please take over for me in that person's life? You don't have to do that. Every knee, every tongue, his jurisdiction is universal. Therefore, let us not judge another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in your brother's way. 
Now, I think, again, I have to say that we've got to balance this out. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, don't judge lest you be judged. But we talked about last week, and if you weren't here, you can get the tape. There is a place for righteous judgment to take place in every congregation, in every believer's life. Otherwise, a good portion of the scripture is controverted, contradicted. But in the secondary issues, these gray matters, what you eat, what you don't eat, when you worship, when you don't worship, make up your own mind, let God be the judge, and then don't judge one another, but resolve this, don't put a stumbling block or cause to fall in your brother's way. You know, as believers, what we ought to be doing? Becoming stepping stones to people to grow, not putting an obstacle in their way. And if we cast judgment in secondary issues, we're making it harder for them to follow their convictions that they feel are of God. You go up to somebody who says, I feel like worshiping God on Saturday. Don't worship on Saturday. That's wrong. And get into a big thing about it. Let them worship. You know, it doesn't matter when they worship. It doesn't matter how they worship. It matters that they worship. If you don't like worshiping with drums, go to a place that doesn't worship with drums. If you like hymns all the time and stained glass, go find a place that has hymns and stained glass. What's important is that you find a place that you can worship God in. And that's crucial. And this is all part of that third part of the test. Remember, charity does what I do affect my brother or sister in Christ. I don't want to cast a stumbling stone. Remember last week we talked about um, geographic worldliness, that in certain areas of the world it's taboo to do a certain activity like, you know, in this country, you know, if, if a Christian has a drink, <gasps> oh, a Christian should never have any kind of drink at all. Yet the same person who says that will go 20 miles over the speed limit and call somebody else worldly. So we have this geographic acceptance of what is worldly. Culture to culture, it varies. Paul's point, I think, is that we should be very sensitive to those sensitive areas in other cultures and with other people. If I were to go to a bar, you see, just that whole thought makes you go, <laughs> it's out of place. And let's say I have great liberty. You know, I just want a brewski, just a tall one. I saw the commercial, it looks good. And so I'm sitting there with my Bible open. Yeah, let's see. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. How's that going to look? Somebody's going to walk by. Now picture that somebody being somebody who has been addicted to alcohol and is struggling with it. And they see me doing it. I could plunge them back into an addiction. Well, I have the freedom and liberty to do it. I do whatever I want to do. Really? Are you really belonging to Christ? Because if you are, you love other people. Verse 14. Now, now this is Paul's conviction. Notice, I know and I'm convinced by the Lord Jesus there's nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it's unclean. Speaking only now of indifferent matters, okay? Gray areas. Because there's a, plenty of things in life that we know are unclean. There are certain things we know are immoral. But this is the gray area. Nothing is unclean of itself. In other words, there's no foods that are ceremonially unclean if you eat them. 
that'll give you distance between you and God, as it was for a Jew who was under the law and there were certain dietary restrictions. And Paul is saying this, I know, I am convinced, I can go over to the temple meat market, buy a chunk of meat, take it home and eat it. It's not a big deal. It's my own personal conviction. Nothing is unclean of itself. In fact, when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, in the last days, among other things that will come, there will be people who will come along and forbid you to eat certain things and they will abstain from foods, he says, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving. Notice, for it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. What does that mean? It's set apart by the Word of God because the Bible specifically says that we should eat food for our nourishment. Genesis 2, you kill it, you eat it. It's sanctified by prayer because we offer God thanks before we eat it, and so it's okay to eat. Nothing is unclean of itself. Do you remember what Jesus said that shocked the disciples? He said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him but what comes out of his heart, his inmost being, that defiles a man. There's no food that you can eat that will defile you spiritually. Now, it might defile you in other ways, but not spiritually. It might give you heartburn. Oh, that was bad food, man. Okay, you got defiled physically. It might cause you to get sick. We had people that traveled to uh, Mexico recently, and they ate food right off the street. It was sanctified by the word of God and prayer, but it wasn't sanctified by the kitchen. There were germs and bacteria, microscopic microorganisms that didn't agree with the microorganisms in our people's stomachs. It's okay to eat it ceremonially, but it gave them real problems. Eating something or not eating something won't make you closer or further away from God, is the point. Now, the Jews had a strict code. They said, this is clean, this is unclean. We'll eat this food, but not that food. And when we eat this food, we have to cook with certain dishes and separate those dishes from these dishes. They still do it today. It's kosher, kosher law. When they washed hands, this is how they did it. There was an elaborate hand-washing process. That's why in the Gospel of Matthew, the Pharisees say to Jesus, Your disciples eat with unwashed hands. It's not the, the hygiene they're worried about. It wasn't like when your mom used to say that to you, Wash your hands before you eat. It was purely ceremonial. There was a certain way you were to wash your hands. You had to, according to the Jews, keep your fingers pointed toward heaven and have water poured from the fingertips, flowing down the palms, down to the wrists, dripping off the elbows. Once you did it that way, the water which you use is now defiled because it hit your hands, which may have touched the dead or a Gentile or the dust of a Gentile. So now you are told to turn your hands upside down. This is all written in prescribed Jewish law. And point your fingers downward and have the process reversed. The water hits the arm covers the wrist, the hands, and drips off the fingers, then you dry. A strict Jew did that not only before every meal, but between the courses of each meal. 
And some of the rabbis even taught, get this, some of the rabbis taught that there was a certain demon called Shibta that would attach itself to your hands while you were sleeping. And then if you touched the food with those hands, you could ingest the demon and become demon-possessed. It's as crazy as some people today who say Christians can be demon-possessed. And so, you got to watch the, the cooties, you know. you got to get the cooties off. <laughs> Ceremonially unclean cooties are on that, those hands and that food. And that was the whole issue of your disciples are eating with unwashed or unclean hands. Now let's take that principle. Some people today in churches divide over such nutty incidental gray area issues and have developed a code of clean and unclean. There are certain things that if you are a true Christian, never would you do. And so they will say, no true Christian smokes a cigarette. No true Christian would ever touch alcohol. Now imagine a person who is a smoker and has heard all of his life that stuff. You know, the smokers are unclean. They're not born again. They're not going to heaven. Now that person tried to kick the habit, but it's become physiological. It's become a true habit. And he'll never proceed any further than that and ask Jesus for cleansing of his sin and his heart because he believes what he has been taught, that you have to change the outward before you change the inward. I remember watching a guy on television years ago. I don't even know if he's still around, but I think he was was a real short little evangelist named Ernest Angley. And uh, he used to um, bring people up on stage, very, very theatrical, and he would generally ask two questions. He'd say, are you saved? That's how he talked. Are you saved? (laughs) And if they said yes, then he'd say, do you smoke? And he'd make a big issue of this. It was just two questions. Are you saved? Do you smoke? And then his third question is, what brand? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But uh, then he would proceed to cast the demon out of tobacco or something. Smoking will never send anyone to hell. And you say, Skip, are you saying then it's okay to smoke, it's okay to drink? For me, it's not. If I do it, I'll be defiled. My own personal conviction and my own personal conscience is I can't do it. Now, there was a time when I did smoke. I started smoking when I was 10 years of age and smoked continually till I was 20. I was saved when I was 18. For the first two years, I'd light up. Praise God. No problem. You know, that's, that's, I... <laughs> then I became convicted. I became, my own personal conviction is that my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. belongs to God. I don't want to do this. I started getting sick of it. I, didn't, I was tired of stained teeth and bad breath. And, and, um, and now when I smell it, it makes me sick. Now, if you smoke, it doesn't mean you go to hell. In fact, if you smoke, you might get to heaven a little bit sooner (laughs) than if you didn't. By cutting your life short. The issue for me is I want to preserve my life and be as healthy as I can on this earth and be responsible so that I can serve the Lord with my last breath. 
And I want it to be a full breath, not a gasping breath. So for me, it's unclean. If I smoke, I'll defile myself. And if I drink, I'll defile myself. People say, Skip, do you drink? I say, I drink as much as I want. I don't want. There's none that I want. Yet, if your brother is grieved because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. In other words, knowledge and liberty must be balanced out with love. We walk in love. We ask this question. If you're unsure and you're in a group of people, just ask this. Would I offend you if I did this? That's showing love. And if they go, well, actually, it would offend me. Then don't do it. Don't say, well, I have rights, you know. I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. If you love, you gladly give them up that you might serve. Parents, you'll understand this. When kids are afraid of the dark, Mommy, Daddy, there's a monster in the closet. Do you know better? You know there's no monster in the closet unless your other child's hiding in there. (laughs) But you know better. Now, your son or daughter is awfully afraid of the dark. There's a monster hiding in the closet. You know better. But you know what? Your knowledge doesn't help them out any. There's no monster in the closet. Now get up there. And would you drag them up in the dark? Come light. See, it's just me. No, you wouldn't do that. A good parent. A couple of you have done that, I can see right now. I've hit a sore spot tonight. Now you'll turn the light on. You'll sit with your son or daughter and you'll open the closet. See, it's just your dirty clothes. There's no monster. That's what that smell is. So bottom line is you balance out liberty and knowledge with love. Remember the two commandments. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And you can never separate those two. They're warp and woof of the same. Therefore, verse 16, do not let your good be evil spoken of. In other words, don't give others the opportunity to criticize you. How? By not being concerned about secondary issues and how they would offend, they'll accuse you of being loose. They'll accuse you of being unscrupulous, not caring at all, being a loose kind of a, of a person before the Lord, because they're weak in that area. For the kingdom of God, I love this, it's not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What really counts in the kingdom of God isn't dietary regulations, but spiritual realities. That's what really counts. The kingdom of God, the sphere where God is in control, that's what it means where he's the ruler. If I claim God as my king, if I say, yes, I'm a Christian, Jesus Christ is my Lord, he is my king, then the issue is not about what I can do, what I can eat, what I can drink, what I can smoke. The issue is about how does it affect other people. And the law of love takes precedence. So we don't want to major on minors, strain at gnats, swallow camels, in Jesus' own words. We want to be very careful around those who do strain at gnats and swallow camels, right? Because we don't want to hinder the work of the Lord for this sake. But notice, the three things the kingdom of God does consist of are unselfish things. Righteousness, peace, joy. 
Righteousness, first of all. I don't care what you eat. I don't care if you're a vegetarian. I don't care if you worship on Saturday. I don't care if you worship on Sunday. What I care about is are you born again? Do you have the righteousness of Christ in you? Not all these external, I'm a religious person. I don't care. Do you have the righteousness of Christ applied to your life? That's the kingdom of God. Then peace, harmony. We're to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, said Jesus. You know what a peacemaker does? A peacemaker drains his moats. Remember the moats in the old days? They were waters that that kept people away. A peacemaker drains the moat, let people come close, and there's now a relationship between us. We get along. And then joy. You know what that joy is? The joy of unity. And you can't have peace and joy if you're divided. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify one another. The word pursue means to run swiftly after to catch something. In other other words, look for ways, look for ways, be on the pursuit for ways that would build another person up. Pursue it. Too many are looking for ways to tear one another down. Too many are looking for ways to make this little stupid little argument a point of contention and division between us. Look for ways. Pursue peace that edify, that build one another up. Somebody once noted to the shame of the church that the church is the only outfit that shoots its wounded. You know, we get beat up enough by the world, don't we? We need strength. We need encouragement. We need the teaching of the Word of God. We need equipment. Bathed in love, understanding, acceptance over these incidentals. Now, if somebody comes in and says, I don't believe in the virgin birth, and I believe in being immoral, and that's my personal conviction, we'll be all over you. In love. But we be all over you. And we will confront in love. But in these secondary issues, we want to get you through. We don't want to be a stumbling block, but a stepping stone. Do not destroy. We're almost there. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Listen to that in the Living Bible. It's, it's fresh. Don't undo the work of God for a chunk of meat. Isn't that great? God's doing a work. Don't undo it for a chunk of meat or a cigar or a beer. Now, what is talking about the work of God? Each one of you is a real work of God. You're a piece of work of God. Ephesians says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. The Greek word poema, you are God's work of art. What would you think of somebody going into a museum and taking a spray paint can to a Rembrandt, defacing a work of art? Be horrible. Or taking a Stradivarius violin and saying, man, I'm going to make this psychedelic. He ruined a work of art. Far worse to take a believer who is a work of art and hinder his growth in the Lord by disputing this way over secondary issues. Why would you ruin the work of God for your personal conviction that you're trying to push someone into that mold? 
It is good neither to eat meat nor to drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Now, I want to balance this out briefly as we close. We don't want to cause anybody to stumble, but who is it that stumbles? It's the weak. It's not the strong. It's the mature. It's the childish believer that does, according to Paul. An infant in Christ. He's not strong. He hasn't grown in grace. You know what it is? When you have a child born into the house, everything changes. Everyone changes. You don't leave knives out. You don't leave china and scissors on the floor. Everything is nailed to the wall. It's nuclear proof. (laughs) Everything's child proofed. But you don't keep doing that, do you? Kids 20 years old, you don't like, stay away. You train the child to become more mature. And so while we should be very careful with people's personal convictions and gray areas, at the same time, we want to grow them up. And there are some areas where we put our arms around them and we love them and we don't want to offend them. And then we say, grow up in all things in Christ Jesus. We want to not leave them infants, but see them become spiritual adolescents and mature adults. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is sin. If you're not absolutely sure that God approves this, if it's against your conscience, this gray area, don't sin against your conscience. Don't do it. Again, this is gray area. Don't take this principle and say, Skip said, in life let your conscience be your guide. Now let the Word of God be your guide, and where the Word of God is is not overt and clear in those gray areas that adiaphora, as the Stoics called it, then let your conscience be your guide and those three principles that we mentioned be your guide. When I was living in San Bernardino, California, as an intern in radiology, and I was single and living off Hamburger Helper and all of those things. I learned an interesting lesson. A guy had a goose down sleeping bag for 75 bucks. It was a steal. As soon as it was up for sale, I went out and bought it. Took it home, slept in it that night on my couch. Thought, this is cool. Through the night, I couldn't sleep. I was plagued. I kept waking up. I felt, as odd as this sounds, a personal conviction that I shouldn't have bought that sleeping bag simply because I hadn't talked to God about it. It was a good deal, but I was tight on money. There were other things I felt that needed to be done with the Lord's money, and I hadn't prayed about it, and I felt very convicted, so much so that I had to go to my friend the next day, give him his sleeping bag back, and say, I can't take this. Why? Well, I feel the Lord doesn't want me to have it. He said, you're kidding, right? Go, no, I'm not kidding. It was the voice of the Lord, I believe, through my conscience that was rising up to condemn me to teach me a lesson. Can I buy a sleeping bag today? I just did because one went on sale two weeks ago, and I didn't feel guilty about it. But I had to learn a lesson. At that point, it was... It was 
My conscience, it was a conviction. It was a secondary issue, but it was a personal conviction. So we need to be very careful with our conviction and with others' convictions. Get in touch with what you believe about these issues. Come to a conviction. Come to a belief system about when you should worship, what you should eat and not eat. Come to a real decision personally about these gray area issues. Be consistent with it. And then don't try to push that on somebody else. Let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit. Because eventually they're not going to stand before you in judgment. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad nobody's going to stand before you? Aren't you glad you're not going to have to stand before me or anybody else? But God, who knows every heart, 